This is Daniel Figella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. Many times on the show, we have covered the topic of AI in manufacturing. In fact, we have many episodes on AI in manufacturing and heavy industry over the next three months, and we've had plenty in the previous three months. But we don't often cover additive manufacturing. Many of you have heard the term 3D printing. Well, Additive manufacturing, the process of manufacturing things by adding material as opposed to carving it or taking it away, encompasses a much broader set of processes than most people presume if they've simply watched some plastic being printed and turned into something novel at some kind of a demo day. And being that this is the AI and Business Podcast, the question that uh, begs itself to be asked is where does artificial intelligence fit in to the additive manufacturing process? Where can AI actually add value? Our guest this week goes into robust detail on exactly that. Dr. Faustino Gomez is the CEO and co-founder of Nascence. Nascence is a firm focused on developing AI solutions for the physical world. We had had their other co-founder on the program about two years ago, a fellow by the name of Jürgen Schmidhuber. Jürgen is well known as one of the fathers of machine learning, as well as having a rather contentious relationship with some of the other forerunners in machine learning, such as Yashua Bengio and Jan Lacoon. If you're interested in Jurgen's episode, you can simply find us on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud and just type in E-M-E-R-J Jurgen or E-M-E-R-J Niacense. It's N-N-A-I-S-E-N-S-E. Uh, Jurgen went into some great detail about AI for dexterous physical robotics applications and explained it kind of from the ground up at a conceptual level. Very cool episode. Today, Faustino focuses on one particular use case that Niacense is focused on in additive manufacturing, a novel use case, a fun use case, and one that really bridges the gap between sort of some of the very technical concepts, but with a very business-like understanding. Faustino is a PhD in artificial intelligence. He studied at the University of Texas at Austin and was then a senior researcher for over 10 years at the IDSIA, which is a well-known artificial intelligence lab in Lugano, Switzerland. Without further ado, let's fly into what might be our first ever AI and business episode on additive manufacturing. This is Faustino Gomez of Nascence here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Tino, I'm glad we're able to be in touch. We were fortunate to speak with your co-founder, Jurgen, there uh, two years back here on the show. And you guys are focused on AI and industry, where there's a lot of unique challenges for actually applying artificial intelligence. I know today we're going to talk more about modeling and digital twin, and you were going to get into uh, sort of a very particular, and it sounds like public use case, with a firm that's 3D printing metal. Can you give us a sense of kind of who this company was and what the business problem was to start off with? And then we'll start to roll into the AI stuff. Well, thanks for having me. Um, the, the company is Electro-Optical Systems in uh, in Munich, well, outside of Munich. Um, I would say they're probably the industry leaders, but certainly the innovation leaders starting in about uh, 1989 with metal printing. Got it. They do both metal printing and uh, polymers. Actually, their um, headquarters for polymers is in Austin, Texas, where we have our subsidiary, So, which is just a coincidence. But the type of metal printing that they do is called um, selective uh, laser sintering. So it's a process where you, you can actually make fun- functional parts um, of arbitrary geometry, but you basically lay down a layer of powder, metal powder, 
and then use a laser to draw the cross-section of the part and fuse that cross-section into the previous layer. So you can build up the part in layers, kind of like what everybody knows about 3D printing for plastic. Sure. But you're actually heating up the metal and fusing it such that it makes a, a mechanical bond such that you can have functional parts. You can actually use these for, you know, in engines and, and things like that, in jet engines, for example. So, so the issue there is that when you do this, you have a physical chemical process. The laser heats up the metal, and you get this you, you get this heat distribution on the cross section of the part, right? Which the uh, the EOS sensor system called the EOSTATE can measure this through optical tomography. So it gets an image of um, how the heat w was distributed on the part, and then. When you look at that, an expert would say it's not totally uniform. Um, in certain places, you've got hot spots and cold spots. And there's always the possibility that when that happens, you could introduce some sort of defect. So some deformation in the part or something that will ultimately result in a uh, structural weakness in the part, which would mean that the part would be, you know, might look nice, but you'd have to throw it away. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Typically, you're making a lot of uh, multiple parts. If, if they're, of a, you know, of a small size, you might be making multiple parts at once. As most people know, the additive manufacturing process is is rather slow. If you don't stop the process and you basically finish the part, you've wasted a lot of time on all these parts that you then have to throw away. So if you can detect early on in the process or during the process that um, a defect may be introduced or something that will ultimately result in a uh, structural weakness, then you can save a lot of money, right? Because you can stop the process. And ultimately, maybe you can even avoid it. Got it. EOS was aware that machine learning had been used you know, detect defects in images, for example. So uh, their mindset was kind of, can we take that approach? You know, can we have an expert label these heat maps with, you know, regions of interest, the typical bounding box around an area that might indicate that there may be a defect in the future. So that was the, the approach initially, which of course would require a lot of manual labor for an expert to go through these images. <clears throat> and of course, a part can have thousands of layers. So you'd have to go through a lot of different parts and a lot of different images to do this. but So that that's uh, one of the issues. But more fundamentally, um, it was that it's not entirely clear in looking at these images what ultimately constitutes a defect, what will result in a defect. So there's not, there's not a consensus on that necessarily. You can only really determine that through non-destructive or destructive testing afterward. And so what we decided to do was kind of abandon that approach of the standard supervised learning, where you basically try to predict labels and instead try to learn a process model. So try to learn the systematic behavior of the machine based on the the inputs to the machine for a given part and the heat map. So basically what we do instead of trying to do the conventional, okay, image comes in from the heat map, predict the label because you've been trained on this label data set. Instead, the model gets the build instructions, the geometry of the part, uh, the laser intensity and the laser tool path because the, the, the laser draws that cross-section in a particular way that's been designed by by us for a given part and can you map that information to the resulting heat map so learn that dynamic model just based on that on that information if you have enough data maybe you can do this and so what we decided to do was say well let's get as much data as we can of you know hundreds or if not thousands of parts of thousands of layers and train a model that can predict that heat map and if it can predict that heat map what you end up getting is a a heat map that predicts the systematic effect of the machine. Um, that is to say, it doesn't predict the spurious things, but instead what happens on average to the machine. Because every time you print a part, you will get these spatters and these things happening. It's hard to say whether they're, they're just the normal behavior of the machine, given the instructions of the part. Let's say if you did the part again, would you get the same exact heat map? 
those things you can predict, um, but you can learn with enough parts, enough um, enough data from enough builds, even of multiple builds of the same part. What you end up capturing is the sort of general behavior dynamics of the machine. And this is another issue if you had tried to take the standard supervised approach. You know, a lot of what happens in a in one particular build is is really spurious, and so you might have somebody label this hotspot as something you would want to avoid or you want to detect, but then in another image of the same part in the same layer, that might not be there. So you would provide the model in a in a standard supervised setting. You would be providing the model with conflicting information, basically yes and no at the same time. And here you sort of take advantage of the yes and no at the same time to get the underlying systematic behavior of the machine. So what you have in the end, once you have a model that can do this, is that let's say you're about to print the next layer, you can predict what the next layer should look look like compared to that to what actually happened. And when you take the difference, you basically look, you can detect those things that are spurious. And if things are way out of whack, you say, well, the machine may be, for example, out of calibration. Got it, got it. Tell me if I'm, I'm just going to try to conceptually grasp this for the audience and frankly for myself here, Tino. So it, let me know if I'm on the right page. The way I think about this in a really, really rough, absolutely not direct analogy, but as close as my brain is getting, is maybe even something like, um, you know, in the cybersecurity realm, you know, we've got a bajillion analysts of XYZ title who are going in, they're clicking and they're moving around in, inside of different software and they're kind of going through their normal workflows. And when something is wacky and wildly kind of divergent from that normal path, we've got some kind of score we can put on that thing and decide if we just want to stop the process altogether, kind of log them out and and go check up on what's up, or if we just want to label it, have somebody look at it later. I would imagine for you guys, again, it feels like there's some, you know, anomaly detection might not be the technical term, but you're 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 finding divergence. And and I would imagine that there's a gradation of those. There's ones where it's like, holy crap, stop the press. And there's ones where hmm, yeah. we might want to look at that and do a non-destructive test and make sure that piece is still good. No, you're right. I mean, it it is really um, going from a um, uh, supervised label prediction to an anomaly detection setting. So what you end up getting, the output of the model provides a, a predicted heat map, which is actually probabilistic. For, for each voxel, it says, you know, it has a distribution. And so you can calculate the probability of the actual behavior of the machine. So when the machine prints the layer, you compare the actual heat map to the predicted one, and you can get the, you can compute the probability of that real heat map. And if it's really improbable, you would say there's something going on here, right? That this is, this is anomalous behavior. It definitely is that kind of a setting, an anomaly detection setting, yes. Got it. Okay. Yep. Of course, it's just, in my opinion, you know, if we're talking about, and for those of you who are tuned in, a voxel is a three-dimensional pixel. Uh, Tino, tell me if I'm, that's a bad definition or a good one, but um, that's right. we're looking at little tiny cubes and, uh, you know, what's happening inside of them, very, very minuscule. To be able to do that with these chemical processes going on is a little bit more complicated to find what is baseline than, let, let's say, payment fraud, where we're also doing anomaly detection. Okay, here's the person, here's the time they paid. That, that, okay, that, that, that data's not that hard to baseline. What you guys are baselining is a much harder thing to baseline. You're taking this machine data, I take it there's, there's heat patterns and all this. So it feels like even finding the pattern of normal is quite a sensor challenge here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to rely on the sensors that are on the machine um, and hope that they capture enough of the dynamics of the process. But the, the, I think the really cool thing about the model is that it's able to predict accurately enough the heat map without actually having measured some important things that occur in the uh, build chamber. So when the when the laser um, heats up the powder, you know, creates smoke, and there's a there's a um, a fan that blows the smoke away, and 
this the sensor there's no sensor for the smoke um the laser toolpath orientation in relation to the way the smoke is blowing changes on every layer and th so there's nothing measuring that aspect yeah, of it and yeah. if you try and if you try to let's say if you wanted to use a simulator for first principles and actually code up you know the the chemistry and you know, use a multi-physics setting and try to you know which of course these exist to model what's going to happen in the process you know to predict that heat map using a standard simulation approach it'd be extremely hard to model the smoke right and even if you could model all these dynamics um, it would be rather slow the model we have you know it, it takes a while to train but once it's trained it's very fast and it can predict the effects of these unmeasured phenomenon in the chamber which is for example the smoke and so it takes that into account just by learning to predict what the outcome should be and internally in the model it it, it implicitly learns um those complex dynamics that it needs to make the prediction yeah even if you can't have a sensor for everything and, and you never will right i mean in, in the future you exactly. and i might hope that all heavy industry equipment will be hyper sensoritized right everything will be built with micro sensors everywhere but unlike a website you know instrumenting the physical world where things can break and, and sensors can fall off and maybe they can overheat or it, it just it, physically instrumenting everything is impossible so you do as well as you can you you take what you have and you, you you make sure that you can find this anomalous, you know, this ability to detect anomalies from the data you have in order to figure out which of these pieces are likely to maybe not actually be shipped out to to a customer. I would imagine, uh, Tino, that for this use case where, you know, it's clearly a very complicated thing to train, you would want a part that you're going to be making a damn well lot of because if you're only going to make 500 of them for customer queue, do we necessarily have even the time or the data to train up this model? And does it even make sense? Because, you know, we want that long-term value of being able to continuously, you know, detect things. It feels like these have to be staple products to train a model of this kind. Well, I mean, typically for, <clears throat> at least um, today, for added manufacturing, it's still small run because of the time it takes to make parts. Um, but of course, it has the huge advantage that you can, you can take ex existing designs for some part assembly that may be involve many components and combine them into a single, much lighter, stronger, efficient part because of the, the freedom that uh, additive manufacturing gives you. So it's typically smaller runs, but parts that are used in very high-tech situations, for example, in jet engines or something like that. So it's, it's rather slow. And um, even if you're doing a, a run of 500, that takes some time. And if you if you have to throw parts away, um, it's also not just loss of material, but it, it really can increase the amount of time, let's say by, I don't know how often they, they have this happen, but any time saved there is really important. And then the other thing with additive is that um, even despite the fact that these machines are rather expensive and um, very well calibrated, I would say, um, you do find annoying differences between identical machines oh, yeah. sitting in the same room. Constantly, yeah. constantly. Yeah. And so the calibration issue is, I think, is a big problem across the industry. And this is something that could help because if you have enough data that's being acquired from a whole range of machines, then you can sort of get the, the idea of what the, the correct calibration should be and use that to detect if a particular machine uh, may be out of calibration. Yeah, yeah. So, man, there's so much to explore here. But tell me if I'm right or wrong. I guess my... You know, as you mentioned, a lot of the the advantage of additive is that we can be much more nimble. You know, we can come up with a new design and we don't need an entire new floor shop of machines to pump out XYZ part. We can just print it. So, you know, completely understood that that maybe we're looking with smaller batches than, I don't know, Toyota pumping mufflers out of some gigantic factory that does not need to 3D print a damn thing. But still here, I'm, I'm actually somewhat surprised, and I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly, that 
you're you're saying that we can print a new part, like, hey, we'll just kind of come up with a totally new part and use an existing trained model on how these machines work? Or I, I was presuming that, you know, let's just say we're coming up with some crazy unique gearbox for, you know, a jet engine. I, I don't, I don't literally have no idea how any of these things. I am not a mechanical engineer by the, but any remote stretch of the imagination, some gearbox, all right, that we just come up with a new one, have the thing print it, you know, just have it be trained on how the machine has worked before. I would presume that would be absolutely impossible and we would need to retrain the model on this particular thing we're printing. But maybe I was understanding that incorrectly. Maybe what you're saying is that yeah. we find these general printing patterns to detect is this likely to be a flawed piece or not, no matter what the heck we're printing. Let me know if it's the latter, not the former. It is the latter. So okay. it, it, it is the case that since we're predicting really uh, the 2D map, right, on the next layer. I mean, ultimately, we predict all the layers. So we end up predicting a volume, right? Because we do the, we do it causally. We do it sequentially um, in the same way that the machine does. It builds the part up in layers, just like in, you know, people's uh, hobbyist 3D plastic printers. So it does it still the same in layered way. And because it's trained on uh, enough data with enough different cross-sections, so enough geometries, enough different shaped slices of parts, right? it's able to generalize uh, and capture the general principles of what happens when you apply the laser in this way to this shape, to a shape. So what happens to it in terms of the thermodynamics? And it really does completely generalize. Wow. Um, okay. And so, so yeah, we, and this is, so what, you know, we do the standard thing where we, you know, we have our, our training set and our, and our test set, you know, this holdout set and, and see that if it can generalize across it. Now, one of the issues that we had initially was getting this to work on large parts. So parts, let's say that have, um, that are thick. Sure, um, relative sure. to the size of the chamber because you get you know different thermal effects near the edge of the part compared to the the inside of the part and then just from a machine learning perspective if you're using something that has convolutional networks it means that the the receptive fields have to be of a certain size to really span the whole part and this kind of thing and it's not to say that the, the model is just a, a convolutional net it involves also recurrent stuff and it's an entirely custom thing but it that was one of the challenges to really scale it up to parts um, not just thin parts but also uh, parts that might have a large interior space yeah. Okay. So it would almost seem to me like you would have model version one, model version two, model version three. Hey, is this is this thing we're printing more similar to these gigantor parts we've been we printed in the past, or or not? But maybe it is just one general. Okay. Got it. You could do that. You you could try to find. So say, um, let's look at the space of all possible uh, closed two D shapes, and say, well, let's let's try to find some qualitative differences between them and have a uh, so decompose the problem right according to some sort of morphology in the sh you know the shape yeah uh, and have one model for each one the next layer is going to be shipped like this okay activate this model that's really good on thin parts or, or really good on big parts um, that's one way to do it but then you know what happens you know in the in the boundaries between them which one do you use and there might be sort of a gray area in between with where neither of them works that great the approach that we took is try to get the model just to be able to do it for the range of sizes that the machine is actually uh, capable of doing. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Makes sense, okay. Which is quite big, actually, yeah. So last question about this. So so we've got you know, a manufacturer that's doing some pretty innovative things with 3D printing of metals. Uh, they want to make sure that they know which of these are production-ready, which of them are not, and they want a general model that will be able to say, no matter what the heck we're making, 
we need a confidence scale as to how ready this thing is to to go out the door. Do we throw it right out because we just know it uh, that it's busted, or do we want to investigate a little bit further? So having that, uh, it feels like the business problem there is, you know, we want safety and reliability for our customers, and we also just want to be able to streamline quality assurance for a very complicated process. Is that a correct assumption of the business value? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just the beginning. I mean, yes, uh, currently w- without a model like this, you you have human experts sort of monitor and look at how the uh, build is going, and they may know enough to to be able to say, okay, you know, this has gone wrong. We need to stop. So this this provides a lot more information because it actually it's the first time that you have something that can predict what's going to happen on the next layer, which without actually having to build the part beforehand. So yeah, yeah, um, it, that that's a great thing to have in itself. Um, for the insights that provides you, and then you know the the early detection that it, that it, it can provide. But more broadly, I mean, if you have something that can go from the geometry of the part and the build instructions, build instructions, I I mean, how finely are you slicing the part into layers? So how thick are the layers? Um, how is the the laser going to draw its heat path on there? Right. So when when the when the laser is heating up the powder, it it does it in a it's a it's a narrow point laser, right? That has to draw that cross-section. And it could just do it like raster scan, right, from left to right and just do that. But it, they don't, it doesn't actually do that. It goes in a, in a pre-computed path that has been optimized, I would presume, heuristically, so that you don't get heat buildup in certain places yeah. and it takes into account yeah, what happened yeah. in the previous layer. Because you don't, you don't want the, the heat to build up and the thing to deform. Right? You want heat to dissipate. So um, if you have a model that can take all that information, the build instructions, and say what will happen in the next layer, well, then you have something that you can use to optimize the build instructions because then you can search the space of build instructions. And the reason you can do that is because for each build instruction that you're evaluating, you put it through the model and it'll tell you, oh, that's a terrible heat map or that's a good heat map in the sense that, for example, let's say the KPI were it's ideal or it's uh, desirable to have a very uniform heat across the layer, right? Uh, what you could do is just evaluate an arbitrary number of, of candidate uh, build instructions and pick and pick those, you know, basically optimize, do a search to find the build instructions that give you the most uniform heat distribution. Um, and that's kind of the next step, you know, basically use a different family of machine learning techniques to search the space of build instructions, given that now you've built this evaluator that can evaluate them. Got it, got it. And so in terms of the actual business value, you know, you've kind of articulated it's beyond simply detecting anomalies, it's actually being able to inform their process at a higher level. What are the outputs that somebody's looking at? So they, you know, this, this, algorithm is running and they're they're printing new things all the time things that you never thought of tino things that they never thought of uh you know they're getting new requests from customers whatever it is how are the outputs of this algorithm manifesting in front of i don't know a quality assurance agent or like who who's looking at it and what are they looking at to actually get that value to be able to take action on what this thing is doing at a minimum what you see is um side by side the actual heat map and the predicted one. And from that, you know, by visual inspection, you can, you know, an expert can detect the differences there. You can subtract them, right, to show how different they are. And you can also compute the probability of each of the, the points in the map, each of the voxels, right? And, and create a, a probability map of the actual output and say, so you, you would actually see a two-dimensional image, right, of the cross-section of the part and saying for each point in there, how, how likely is that to be the normal behavior of the machine? And so you could imagine having a map that, you know, wherever it's like very red, it's way out of distribution 
of what the model predicted. And given that the model was trained on a lot of data over uh, lots of parts, then that should be in itself should be something that would raise a red flag to the operator to say, uh, I need to monitor this, or maybe, you know, we need to stop the process. So, so an operator is literally looking at both hypothetically, or at least has the ability to look at both screens. Here's the modeled process. Here's what I'm actually seeing. I'm going to keep my eyeballs on both these screens instead of just one. And I'll kind of know if the divergence is so vast that I need to pump the brakes here. Is, is that right. sort of, okay, got it. So that's, that's where, that's where this data kind of, uh, manifests. So it's not like it's logged somewhere where, you know, I would imagine, you know, maybe in the future, you'd log into some software and you'd say, show me all divergences of heat beyond XYZ threshold of divergence that I've decided I want to look at. And then I can look at all those instances in the last seven days. And and I can ask, okay, why did we stop the presses on these two instances and not these two instances? You know, and, and being able to kind of maybe see yes. all, all those times where they overlap. But obviously, that involves building out broader software than just having it being visualized. Yeah, but I it, mean, all- yeah. Exactly. I mean, you, 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 there's no reason to not log this stuff and then do a postmortem. I mean, you can, but they're already capturing a lot of this um, data from the um, the actual heat maps, from the optical tomography, even for the, you know, just to produce the data that we used, right? So that stuff um, is logged. And now all you would need to do is log. I mean, and it's in terms of data, it's not that much data if you're just uh, logging the heat map. So you could store all of that and then sort of do mine, you know, do some data mining on that to find you know, you know, which machines are having problems and maybe, you know, ultimately go to root cause of uh, why a, a machine might diverge from sort of the the norm. Yeah, got it. Cool. Yeah. So, all right. Th- this makes sense. I think the most important thing is to say, what does it look like for the person, you know, behind the steering wheel in terms of their experience? And I think you've done a good job of kind of painting that picture. So a very novel use case. I know we've done some additive manufacturing stuff uh, eons ago in terms of articles and interviews, but never about metal. So uh, Tino, I know we're up for time, but thanks so much for being able to share some of your insights and walk us through one of your use cases. You're welcome. Thank you. And that is all for this episode of the AI in Business Podcast. A big thank you to Faustino for being able to join us in this episode. And thank you to you, our listener, for listening all the way through. It matters a lot to me that people care to listen all the way through the episodes. It means that we're doing a good job of producing content and bringing on great guests. And I appreciate having you as a listener. If you've at all benefited from the AI in Business Podcast, if you've been a listener for many years or many months or maybe even just many weeks, It would mean the world if you'd consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. iTunes is the platform where most of our podcast listeners tune in. And we have well over 100 reviews over the years, and they mean a lot to us. It's the main channel for feedback on the podcast. In addition to email and LinkedIn conversations, iTunes reviews are the source of feedback that we use to improve the show. And also, it lets us know what's been valuable. So if you've benefited from the show, you've liked what you've heard here, you've been able to maybe put some of these things in action or advance your career in some important way, drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which is again, used to be called iTunes. Uh, and make sure in the review you mention what you like specifically. That kind of feedback is not something we take lightly, and it's not something that we skip over. That's the kind of feedback that makes its way into our weekly meetings with the team. 
uh, and sometimes makes its way into the newsletter. Many of you who have left podcast reviews over the years, some of you email subscribers have been with us for four years, five years, which I'm uh, epitomally grateful for, have seen your reviews actually show up in the newsletter. We, we, we find some great feedback from some folks who've really benefited from the show. Sometimes we've even looped them into our Tuesday or Thursday newsletter. So again, if you've benefited from the program, consider dropping us a five-star review on iTunes. And otherwise, make sure to keep it locked here on the AI and Business Podcast. I appreciate you being with us. I look forward to catching you in the next episode.